in March of 2023, Goldman Sachs put out this like kind of hysterical re uh, report estimating that uh, the effect of AI adoption on annual labor productivity growth over a 10-year adoption period could range anywhere between 0.3% or 3% of, uh, of GDP growth. And to sort of explore the, um, the, the, the channels as well as the range of impact and the potential pain points that um, corporations and governments all around the world are going to be facing with um, with all these new technologies coming on the line. I couldn't think of anyone better to come on the show to talk than Dan Fagella, who is the longtime host of the Business and AI podcast uh, and also runs the Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research Firm. Um, he has nearly 700 episodes under his belt interviewing uh, AI-adjacent um uh, business people across a number of different verticals. Dan, welcome to China Talk. Hey, Jordan, I'm really happy to be here. Where should folks start when they're thinking about how AI might diffuse across an entire economy? Well, you know, I'll I'll give you kind of the vantage point that we look at, Jordan, and that really is first and foremost sort of looking at its boots on the ground impact in in major industries. So there are always going to be the fun, neat, you know tricks and tools of what's going on on Twitter. And we're going to talk generative in a second, because I actually think it's a bit of a new generation, if you will, pun intended, of, of AI as we've known it. But thus far, the transition uh, of integrating AI in business has been a very clunky and slow one by anybody's standards and means. So the venture-backed companies and the VCs themselves have realized that there are many, many, many hurdles to making this stuff come to life in stodgy legacy enterprises. But I think the way to think about AI's impact is sort of to, to, to think a little bit less about like, okay, call centers generally, are they all going to be automated? The better question from our vantage point here at Emerge is let's get somebody on the phone from the you know, head of AI at US Bank. Let's talk to the top three vendors doing uh, call center integrations. Let's talk to American Express. Let's talk to people with 100,000 call center employees and let's actually figure out what junctures of what workflows are being impacted. Because the right way to think about this generally, Jordan, this is actually a pretty important thing for the audience, is less of AI eating this division of a business or eating this industry. It's more of, here's something we have to achieve. What are the junctures in that process where AI can fit in and actually add value and streamline things? And so from a, a perspective of a pair of binoculars, that's the way we like to think about it. And I'm happy to dive into individual industries or wherever you'd like to go from there. Sure. So let's let's talk about like what what the dream was ten years ago versus oh, yeah. the reality oh, yeah. of sure. where you've seen you know the most and least impact of uh, AI pre you know large language models. First episodes were ten years ago, um, and. I will tell you the early days, I think the assumption was conversational, you know, this is maybe six years ago, conversational AI was immediately just going to become the norm. You know, we were going to have chatbots, you know, to order pizza, to do anything at all. It would all just be SMS-like, super fluent, you know, uh, conversations. Banks were all preparing for that. Uh, everybody thought that would be the norm. The bigger meta picture here uh, is, is also, well, if we talk about the startups, they had all assumed, Jordan, hey, I'm detecting fraud in uh, big banks, right? I'm doing anti-money laundering. Lots of money spent on that, by the way. Banks love to talk about their chatbots. The money spent in the back end, it's spent on risk. So in, in FinServe, that's how it is. Now, um, if I detect, if I learn how to detect money laundering at this division of Deutsche Bank, 
Well, then I have a great trained model. I can go over to Wells Fargo and I can start detecting fraud right away because I've got this great trained model. And actually, Jordan, what people learned is the IT setups, the data harmonization and formats, the different incentives and stakeholders across different companies actually made for pretty minimal transference from customer to customer in all kinds of different industries. So the golden dream was, we'll be like the Google of detecting fraud, because if we can detect enough fraud over here, well, we'll just sell that, sell, say, hey, we've detected the most fraud at these big banks. We can immediately step in and just detect all of yours because we have this wonderful train model. As it turns out, super niche nuanced problems in these different industries. So what a lot of these venture-backed companies looked like, Jordan, is instead of looking like Googles that swooped and took off and just ate this, a whole piece of banking, they just gobbled it up. There's only one player in town, just like Amazon for e-commerce, right? Instead of that, what ended up happening is we had companies basically doing a lot of high-touch consultative stuff to finally integrate with all these goofy bank systems. And then... Then they have to do a lot of high-touch maintenance to kind of keep those systems trained and working within this legacy space. Because, of course, algorithms can start to drift. It's not hard-coded properly the first time, right? This stuff is going to get tilted and somebody's got to maintain it. And now we're almost a services business. And um, Andreessen Horowitz did a great article about this. We've talked about this for ages now. And that's really where things went. We thought AI was going to eat chunks of enterprise. And it ended up being a lot of services businesses with some pockets of reasonable scale where things really picked up. Um, so that was sort of the before and after. Even where we are today, I would say we're in a place where most companies are still doing what we sort of jokingly refer to as like popcorn projects, where they've got a little idea here, a little idea there about AI. Somebody's experimenting. Some of the bigger organizations are thinking at a high level about data and strategy, but it's still pretty disjointed and it really has not gobbled up portions of the enterprise yet yeah and, and sort of the, the the key thing is is like look when you turn into a services company then if when you're thinking on a national level these are like you know half a percent here half a percent there like the, the sort of transformation if you are not able to revolutionize um these existing businesses is they're only getting a little bit better and that's not ultimately Absolutely. the sort of thing that is like driving you know extra points in gdp growth yeah. over a multi-year horizon Companies went in five years ago, six years ago. Some still do today. It's normally the ones that haven't learned lessons. Um, they go in saying, man, this whole process in the call center, this whole process in underwriting, this whole process in airlines, whatever it is, um, uh, drug development, soup to nuts, this could be overhauled. There's a way to set up the data from the intake over here, have it super accessible through this new interface and have people way more nimbly make decisions out over here. And so the visions were very transformational, Jordan. They really were. People were thinking about new ways of doing. Some of them were very naive and unrealistic. Here's what everybody learned. And I mean, literally everybody, brother. We've written about this at crazy length. Is that actually, um, number one, it's still, it's still the Wild West enterprises aren't willing to be the first one to jackhammer their entire data infrastructure for your silly startup. But also, they're conservative. So the companies that we've seen succeed in, let's say, just the last three years, it's not ubiquitous, but to a decent extent, this is the case. They have found small junctures to interact with existing workflows as opposed to overhauling systems. Now, we don't think enterprises are going to overhaul, Jordan, until they have to. It's kind of like, you know, a lot of people aren't going to fire somebody until they finally cross that tipping point where it's like, oh, God, it's clearly going to 
hurt the rest of the business so much, right? There's there's sort of a crisis point that has to happen before jackhammer level transformation will occur. Right now, um, I'll give you one concrete example in let's say the diagnostic space. Lots of cool visions five years ago, six years ago about where diagnostics was gonna go. You know, we'd have doctors with mobile devices that are scanning people and doing all kinds of cool stuff. And it's gonna get piped up into a cloud where the consumer, you know, the, the patient can look at their data or whatever. Um, what we learned, uh, like a good example of a company is a company called AI Doc. They just, they figured out integrations into the boring MRI machines that all these hospitals are using. There's only six, seven major brands. They pipe it up to the cloud. They put little red circles and maybe a little bit of text next to the images that feel like they're a risk. They pipe them down into the same interface that the radiologist was already looking at. No new software, no new workflows. We're adding a little mm. bit of value to an existing workflow. Now we can get customers. Nobody's going to transform until the startups are eating their lunch and the competitors eating their lunch. And Jordan, nobody's eating anybody's lunch yet. Now, transformation will happen, but we didn't see transformation kick in. We saw incremental kick in. And that really has been the, the past of enterprise AI in these last 10 years. Yeah. So this is this is where we come to the big question is like, is whatever is happening with these new models so much better that either there are competitors that can be, you know, 100x better. So you start losing business yes, um, yes. if you don't adopt or the sort of enterprises themselves see ways to gain market share relative to their competitors where there's going to be someone who's going to do the really hard work of like fixing all the gross back end to um, enable you to be, you know, multiples more, uh, you know, affordable or effective or efficient. I will say, if anything, at Emerge, we've built our repute around sort of shooting hype down uh, across the board, just beating the ever-loving heck out of hype and really looking at boots on the ground where things are going. That said, I I'm very much of, belie of the belief that the hype is completely warranted for generative AI. I think that even if the technology froze in place, like we just push pause, no more development. And as you're aware, Jordan, that's not exactly what's happening, right? <laughs> Image generation, text generation, it's going to be in order of magnitude better every three darn months at this pace of, uh, you know, hustle bustle. Um, but if we just froze it, it is so categorically different in many regards that I really do think we have to think about it differently. That doesn't mean that the call center is going to go away in two years. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, uh, we're all going to have to get a new job or, you know, companies are going to lay off half their employees. But I think we have to think about it differently. And there's two ways we have to think about it differently. One is, is the the bubbling up of this technology within existing enterprises. So the way that this has worked previously, Jordan, is <clears throat> companies have had to do a lot of clunky, funky procurement and onboarding with a vendor before a vendor could come in and do something, normally something rather specific within that enterprise. You know, a 12-month sales cycle, six-month sales cycle to help detect fraud in some of your financial statements, for example, or or something along those lines. Um, now we have all, this whole class of tools where kind of just like email, just like my Chrome browser, just like whatever, I don't need to pay anybody fancy dancy to potentially just start automating the summarization that I have to do for these invoices or the generation of text that I have to do for these product descriptions on my gigantic car parts website or something along those lines. So- yeah. Unlike this past wave, there will be an actual bottoms-up effect. Now, everybody 10 years ago to now was always saying in enterprise AI, well, 
you don't even need to be a data scientist. Our tools are so simple. I mean, in, a, in many ways, that's all hubbub. Of course, everybody has to say it's simple. But frankly, this stuff was complicated to integrate. It was complicated to buy. And nothing was going to happen until a sale was made. Now, the pockets and junctures that can be explored are really whoever's got access to a computer. And so there's a, there's a surface area where problems will be addressed that I think is different. Also, some of these technologies are just wildly powerful in ways that self-evidently are going to add a lot of value. Um, like seeing what people are doing with writing code, seeing what people are doing with text, you know, giving, I saw something on Twitter today. Somebody was like, they, they provided a super crazy detailed architectural design in a paragraph, like a very dense paragraph. And they said, um, distill this as chat GPT into no more than two lines of symbols in a way that you would be able to understand what it meant if I told it to you without context later. And the ability of the system to, to work with numbers and, and words in new, nimble, amazingly powerful ways is like shocking. And that's if we pause the technology. Now, I look at these boring workflows, like looking over mortgage documents or something like that, looking through uh, uh, customer records um, that we have on file as a, an insurance company or something along those lines. Um, th there's just so much that this stuff could do. However, the other factor at play here is that the startups, I, I think the, the new ways of doing things, you know, the new way an insurance company is built, the new way that a, an e-commerce brand will come to life, the new way that a logistics company will manage all of its IT, I, I think are going to be very much more nimble and lean from like a tech uh, stack and employee standpoint and also potentially astronomically more efficient with this technology. Yeah. I think it's going to be a few more years until that happens, but we have that outside pressure of somebody eating your lunch. And then we have a little bit of that inside pressure of all the surface area, which is very different than these past point solutions. So I, I do think it's a different thing. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned like, oh, this, this thing is so easy. You don't have to code for it. I've been like, I've like half taught myself Python like four times um, over the past 10 years. And um, every time I got to the point where I was like, this is not interesting and I will just wait around until like I can come up with my idea and and like something can figure it out. Because, you know, I have all these like clever ideas of like, oh, I'd really like like to do some like, you know, data analysis on this, that and the other thing. And because, look, I read a lot of stuff. I spend a lot of time on the Internet. I have like creative, like quantitative thoughts. But um, the sort of the. the the pain for me personally and being like, oh, I got to like clean this data set. I got to load it in. I got to make sure all like the columns are labeled appropriately and like, you know, nothing gets like messed up in like pandas or whatever. It, it, it was just so obvious to me that like someday it would like a computer would be able to do this for me with, um, you know, with just me speaking to it. And, you know, that took 10 more years than like when I did this stuff at the end of college yeah, and yeah, grad yeah, school. Yeah. And, 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 and and sort of thinking of thinking of that, like whatever my workflow, you know, I have a very specific workflow of like doing policy analysis, right? But there's like so many other workflows of people out there who just like have not put in, you know, the six months or year of their life to be able to write basic scripts. And, you know, even if we freeze it today, right, which is not the right way of thinking <laughs> about it, there's so much bottom up stuff of people 
who are going to be looking at whatever they do on a daily basis. And if their companies allow them um, or if their boss doesn't catch them, um, uh, you know, automating away some of their some of their work, then like that's where I just as a as a sort of naive observer start to see that real productivity, uh, those real productivity gains start to pick up. I think you're right. And and I will say, I think that the pressure for enterprise to transform will have to be both ways because you brought up a great point, Jordan, which is if your boss doesn't catch you. Now, some bosses are going to encourage it, particularly at scale ups where everybody's already aggressive and super lean and, you know, we're printing money and we're going somewhere big and we're tech first and digital DNA and all that. Um, I think there's going to be some of those teams that are more and more nimble, you know, every year. Uh, and, and that could be really cool. I think if you're working somewhere in a dark corner of Geico Corporation, um, it yeah. is possible that if you and the guy sitting next to you are somehow working or are somehow working 50% less but getting 25% more done uh, because these two tasks that are so monotonous and ridiculous, you literally just can get it all done in your damn browser and everybody thinks it looks wonderful. Um, they're, they're, I don't think that the manager of that department is likely to say, man, we could probably just up the amount of volume we could handle here altogether, right? People want their fiefdom with 200 people. They don't want to cut it to 20. They don't want to cut it to 100. Um, and, and I'm not saying that, that because they're bad. I'm just saying incentives are real. And the only real incentive is necessity, the, the, the mother of all invention here. And, and necessity is somebody's going to eat your damn lunch, right? If you can sit there and get a salary, a lot of people are going to sit there and get a salary. Um, but if if there's no choice, then I think the bottoms up and outside in pressures both are what make enterprise transform. And and to your point, a lot of that might be with the code, might be you know happening for the developers first. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So we, we've talked about one of the sort of, one of the kind of like hurdles of this, which is just like, large organizations not being super interested in change or not having enough force on them to change. I'm curious other, you know, regulatory, psychological uh, hurdles, like w- what else is there? Um, you know, uh, you mentioned sales cycles. What what else is there that's going oh, to slow this down let that me, the sort let of me, like Twitter dreamers sure. haven't necessarily internalized? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me count the ways. Um, so we have a good article called... Uh, uh, critical capabilities, so E-M-E-R-J, and then critical capabilities. If you put it in Google, you pull it up. It's an infographic, basically breaking down the required capabilities of a company, br- roughly in three categories, but with subcategories of resources, skills, and culture, ultimately sort of have to be at a certain level for anybody to do anything with AI. Um, so on that side, culture is a really, really big one. Everybody or most people are willing to concede we probably need people that are nimble with Python leveraging data, data architectures in order to wake this stuff up, use it in a better way, unlock its value. We probably need that. And so there's, you know, I'm not saying they're all doing hiring well, but I'm saying that skills we sort of realize. Resources would be sort of compute. Uh, you know, we can pay Amazon. We can work with one of these new startups. Uh, you know, maybe we want a data platform or, or ML platform. 
like a Dataiku or something. These are resources. Culture seems to be, none of them are trivial, but culture seems to be the one where the most frustration exists for both internal leaders and enterprise and vendors. And culture means basically this. AI is not IT. Here's what I mean. IT is deterministic. AI is probabilistic. So what I mean by that is with IT, I'm sort of setting a bunch of if-then scenarios in place. I'm oversimplifying, but permit me in this podcast, uh, where if this happens, then these two things will happen. And then, you know, uh, this icon will appear here and then this thing will show up here and whatever the case may be. So within software, we can hard code something more or less. It, it ought to work somewhat similarly over and over again. With AI, especially for training on our own data, we're, we're not really sure even if our data has the, uh, the requisite information in it to be able to automate what we want to automate. There are many companies, Jordan, who thought they could build a recommendation engine with their e-commerce data, and they realized, A, they don't have enough product variety. B, they don't have enough information about a user's email connecting to web presence, connecting to whatever to actually connect those dots. They realize there's data gaps, there's volume gaps. And you know what? We spent six months and we got nothing out of it. And so AI is like R&D, Jordan. It's like R&D. And so when people are moving forward with AI, there's two competing forces that are a real devil in making this stuff click in the enterprise. And, and it's a whole other level in the government um, is on the one hand, we need to invest in these critical capabilities that I mentioned. We've got to level up our data infrastructure. We need to make it accessible. We need to know what elements of what we need to use. Um, we, we need to be able to nimbly use it. And uh, so we need to level that, the skills, resources, culture to sort of think about data that way. And on the other hand, it's R&D, which means when we roll the dice to detect fraud or roll the dice to make our recommendations work, it's not like they're all a total crapshoot. Nobody can really say, oh, it'll be two months until you have better results from our, you know, uh, search application on your e-commerce site. Nobody with a straight face. Salespeople might say that, but it's very, very hard to say that with a straight face. So we have R&D, which is in, in increasingly kind of risky, right? And then we have new capabilities that ultimately require investment. Th that's oil and water. And for that reason, we've seen a lot of spittering, spattering, little attempts with AI, and there's very little vision from the top to force those two to meld Jordan. And so that, that's that got to be among the largest factor here. Yeah, you, you, you brought up government. Um, sure. What's your, like, when is the IRS going to do my taxes with a with a large language model? Like, what, what are, oh, um, uh, uh, you know, what are, what, what, what you know, let, let's do this sort of like promise, you know, the, the dream versus reality 10 years ago to today and, and how much is worth extrapolating in the oh, government space, even with um, uh, all these new capabilities that are about to come online? Yeah, look, I mean, defense is a little bit more of where we're focused at Emerge. And so when we talk to people, it's the startups and then it's the leadership in, in the more defense side. Um, but we do talk to like policy folks outside of that. Well, I'll just use the IRS as an example. One of the challenges there, I mentioned we have an internal pressure of people bubbling up and finding ways to streamline workflows. Um, but then we have to have an external pressure of, okay, no, 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 that has to scale because we cannot do things the old fashioned way anymore. Th those have to come together. And the tough thing about the IRS is there's no competition. And so uh, necessity being the mother of invention, maybe we don't need to do anything except for sit here for nine hours and eventually get a pension, right? And now I'm not, I'm not hating on government people. Incentives are real. Everybody's run by them. I am, you are, our mothers are. That's my personal opinion. Um, but I think that the government, it, number one, it's 
it's so hard to unify such a stodgy, kludgy, ancient process for kind of where the data are, how the processes work, et cetera. And there's yeah. really very little motive force for that bottom-up pressure, and there's no force from that outside-in pressure. So I'm not going to say never, but by golly, it's going to be so bumbling and so slow. It'll happen in the government by the time it's been boringly, predictably common in the private sector for everybody doing similar tasks. So once that happens, then eventually it'll creep, creep, creep into the government. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't cross your fingers. Defense might move a little faster, but IRS, I don't think so. It's, it's funny because I, you know, there's all this like research around nudging and um, sort of like the government, like lots of governments around the world, they would like, oh, like we'll do this study and like we'll text people like three weeks after they want to do something. And like, you know, we want them to do something and maybe they'll do it more. It's like, well, like, like this has been so, you know, built out by, you know, everyone who's trying to sell you something on the internet for like, you know, 15 years now. And just now we're now sort of nudging people to sign up to like get healthcare or like buy, um, you know, use their veterans and use their veterans benefits or whatever it is. And, and that's a really interesting, interesting frame of it. And, you know, I guess with the defense stuff, like you do have the, you know, quote unquote competitive pressure of like, oh, like, China's doing this and like their system can beat our system. So like maybe we want to get on that or something. But um, uh, yep. for anything domestic, it um, uh, you, you, you don't really have that until like you have voters demanding it, I guess. Yeah, maybe. which who knows how long that would take, right? I mean, I, I, I don't really know how to solve that Byzantine internal issue. But you're right. Defense is moving a little bit faster, but they have a lot of their own challenges with bringing this stuff to life. There's incentives there too, Jordan. There's an ecosystem of companies who bend metal first and very recently learned how to write a line of code, okay? And now those companies are the ones that have all the relationships, all the old boys club, and I'm not calling them bad. I've had Raytheon on the show. They're going to be on again. I got nothing but respect, brother. But the fact of the matter is legacy primes sort of being the ones that are interfacing with defense and also defense I'm not going to say they should fix this because I don't have any instant solutions. But the fact that a lot of the smart people I've known in proper defense have just gone out into industry and made two and a half times more uh, and done more interesting stuff is problematic. We can't keep our our skill, our talent, and we can't really level up our culture if we're still interacting culturally with the folks that make tank treads, you know. Uh, and so it's it's pretty tough in defense as well. But at least they have the external pressure of not wanting to to lose yeah so the, yeah. the um uh, on the sort of like regulatory constraints i mean you talk about like like a lot of folks talk about how getting you know being able to train um on your company's data or like uh you know whatever that 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 you know, this sort of, um, uh, you know, every every mortgage loan you've ever done. Um, but yeah. like if you apply that to a defense context um, of like, you know, you simulate a thousand battles or whatever, it ends up becoming a lot, um, a lot trickier. And I imagine there are going to be a lot of sort of institutional challenges around sharing data and, 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 and whatnot. Um, maybe maybe more broadly, Dan, just like what are going to be the sort of regulatory, like legal challenges beyond just the like copyright stuff that folks um, uh, that folks are focused on today, which are which are going to throw um, uh, throw some sand in the gears of uh, this broader um, revolution? OK, cool. So um, it, 
my my interview before you today, uh, as you know, I, I am bogged down with my own audio recordings all day here, Jordan, uh, was with the, the fellow who runs the Mozilla Foundation. So obviously Mozilla has a browser that we've probably used a couple of times. Um, and they're really interested in sort of where the future of the web is going. We had a pretty robust discussion around this uh, risk and policy wise earlier today. Um, and I think a lot of the ideas that I just unpacked, I've got to give the guy some credit, uh, um, Mark, who, who runs the foundation there. <laughs> um, right now, think about it like this. I look outside and there's roads, there's double yellow lines, there's stop signs, there's lights that are green, red, whatever. There's all, you know, there's highways, there's smaller roads. And then also I look at my computer. I've got a browser with little icons at the top. I've got little logos in those icons. I've got an email address that has an at in it and then has a dot in it and all kinds of stuff. That digital world and that physical world of roads, none of that was self-evident. And so the, this new space we're entering where data is flowing and pouring off of people and organizations and there's going to be new kinds of privacy concerns, new kinds of manipulation concerns, new kinds of data rights and sovereignty considerations. Number one, None of it has hit the ground running hard enough for us to define everything. Um, and I think that's in part, that's OK. Let's let some stuff happen. I'm hoping nothing horrible happens, but that's it. But eventually, business, consumers, government will sort of in an iterative way, having this discourse and intergovernmental organizations that are trying to think about this, will start to map out what are at least the highways here. And we'll start to map out what are the speed limits here. And we'll start to map out what are the new kinds of crime, right? There was a time where you know, stealing an old grandma's info by some email scheme or something, like somehow went through some loophole, right? There was no specific kinds of cybercrime yeah. identified or whatever. There's going to be all new sorts of that. So I would say um, the businesses that'll stay farthest ahead of that, and probably government as well, will be the folks that are actively participating in that conversation now and figuring out what smell like the risks, what smell like the components of GDPR that might make their way in some way, shape or form to the U.S.? What is the, what are my what are my competitors in big pharma in banking starting to do with data governance, being mindful of what regulator regulators are knocking on their door about? So I wish I had a hardened vision of it. What I would say is the roads and the browsers and the internet rules and the rules of the road they're all being written right now, and the companies that are going to brace well for that are going to be the ones that are part of that discourse and kind of prepare themselves governance wise along the way. So I wish I had a better answer. We can go deeper, but that's kind of a high level. Yeah. Maybe I'm uh, sort of like your three industries you're most optimistic for and three you're most pessimistic for over the next, you know, say five years of being able to incorporate whatever new AI stuff comes down the road in a, oh, in yeah. a sort of radically uh, transformative, like productivity increasing way. Whoa. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and some of this, so I, I definitely have a perspective for this in terms of AI up until now, Jordan. Um, yeah. So uh, if, if ever anybody said, hey, Dan, pound for pound industries that not only are percent of their budget investing the most of AI, but percent of their processes integrating the most AI, it'd be pretty easy to ballpark circle around e-commerce, digital media, and fintech as areas that are very digital first and extremely AI nimble as little sub-industries. So those are spaces yeah. where I don't expect, I don't expect us to have any winners that aren't super hot to trot on the latest of AI. So they're kind of digitally nimble spaces. Um, and so they've got some advantages there, but those are areas where they're certainly not spending the most, right? Banks have a lot more money than fintechs, but 
the percent of workflows that are flexibly, nimbly leveraging AI and fintech is another stratosphere compared to legacy banks. So um, uh, we talked online media, fintech, e-com, spaces where we should expect things to be ravenous, absolutely ravenous. New companies founded to just be adopting this stuff off the get. Slow spaces, okay. Within legacy enterprise, financial services are faster at adopting than most of legacy enterprise. So banks are always like, oh, we're so slow here in the banking world. This company was founded 150 years ago. I'll just tell you right now, Jordan, the dollars spent and the relative digital fluency inside of even a stodgy Wells Fargo is on another stratosphere compared to manufacturing, logistics, oil and gas, mining. Some of these industries are there, we're using yellow pads in some of these industries, Jordan. I mean, I'm not joking with you. And so, you know, our warehouses are managed on yellow pads. And so I think those spaces I just mentioned, the heavy physical spaces, yes, I think LLMs and AI are going to overhaul them. And I think the use cases are ravenous. And I completely admire the companies working away in, in manufacturing. There's a lot of promising use cases. And we've interviewed a ton of them. Nobody could say we haven't. Too many interviews, to be honest. Um, so, But I think manufacturing is really... By golly, I hate to tell you. I mean, it's just really slow and it's not digitally nimble. And I don't see as much LLM use case in this next wave there as I do in other areas. Um, similarly, the mining energy space, there's a lot there. And, and those companies have cash. The, 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 the big, you know, the Exxons and whatnot, they've got the dough. They've got R&D budget. They don't have R&D uh, data nimble cultures, at least at the same scale as, as uh, uh, let's say, financial services or, or even life sciences. Um so I, I would say kind of the mining oil and gas, you know, manufacturing spaces, I don't see as much overlap with LLMs as compared to retail, finance, life sci, healthcare, and they're so digitally unnimble today. It's just going to be a longer chug along for them. So that's the fast answer. Let me know if that suffices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting though, because we talked about the sort of inside and outside pressure and like the, the more yes. yellow patty stuff that you have in an industry, the juicier it is for that, you know, if there really is a real LLM uh, or, or just Use sort case. of like, you know, if, you know, if there really, if there is an enormous sort of like large model use case, then all of a sudden that startup has a lot more room um, to run as long as there's not some big regulatory concern of like, you need a license from a bank or you need to buy up all these oil wells that you need to get permits for or something. Um, it, it is, it, it does like actually like if the cultures are so broken, um, or just not like attuned for whatever is coming down the pipeline technologically, yeah. then that also yeah. opens, opens up a lot of doors for, for new entrants as a, um, to be able to challenge less, um, uh, less, less nimble incumbents. You're absolutely right. And so look today and in the next, let's call it five years, Exxon is really competing with Shell and the other folks. So. Hear me out. If Exxon, and I'm not saying they are, by the way, we've interviewed people. I've talked to folks there, like they're nice guys. Uh, we had somebody from Shell on last year, a great fellow, um, very bright. Uh, but if there's still some part of the workflow that are that are yellow pad slow, okay? If there's some still some parts of, of that business that are yellow pad slow, so long as uh, Chevron and, and, and BP and all the other players are still on yellow pads too, the pressures aren't there yet. But you're right. The startups eventually will come, but it's going to be a while until the next Exxon gets built. I'm not going to say it's not yeah. going to happen. There will be some digital nimble incumbent or some 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 player that challenges the incumbents. But that's that's past like the five year time horizon. So I would say in the near term, compared to banks, where there's a lot more sort of individual workflow junctures that 
are getting forced to be a little bit tightened, there might be pockets where the pressures aren't hot, at least in the near term. You're right. Eventually, somebody in the Stone Age has got to die off, but there's just less pressures in, in some of those spaces from their peers who are their immediate yeah. threats, primarily. It's not often I get to talk to people who've done more podcast episodes than I have. <laughs> um, uh, Dan, I just want to close um, on any like, you know, lessons learned, advice you have for other folks thinking about, um, you know, starting their shows, like what, you you know, can you, can you distill 10 years of podcasting into, um, uh, into, um, into five minutes and maybe like what the, what the, what the, what you think the uh, platform, is, you know, what do you think the medium is good for or not good for? Take this, take this wherever yeah. you want, reflecting on. Okay, sure, years. sure. The thing that's pulled me through in this space, there's a few things that have been big. One is picking a domain space where I know that there's unlimited action and I have unlimited interest. And so that 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 fuel of consistently publishing is so critical, right? How many podcasts are up for 18 months and then die off, six months and then die off? So if you're going to plug away at it, it is a long game. Obviously, you got to know that. And that means you have to have a natural enthusiasm. We found that titling your show properly is also very big, even more so than a URL and a website. So we were called the Tech Emergence Podcast for a while. We changed it to AI and industry at some point. And up to this day, and that was seven years ago or something, to this day, that was like the biggest near-term immediate jump in traffic we ever had because it went from, huh. what does this mean, to, oh, I kind of understand, right? So, um, and, and that's just an interesting fun fact lesson. Your show already has a fine name, Jordan, but ours did not. And, and we found that, man, people aren't going to know you and what you're cool for. You have to, you have to, generally our, our experience, you got to be in a ballpark where somebody searching for a topic would say, maybe this is the show for me. And so now it's the AI and business podcast. Luckily now we are the big B2B AI podcast. Um, and, uh, but, but that, that name change was the difference between three people listening and our first couple thousand people listening. Right. So a uh, very, very big, big, uh, thing there. Um, it, I guess it's just one other parting bit of advice. The other thing that's made shows fun is sort of have um when you interview people we have found that the more that communications people are involved in really micro structuring and bullet pointing what you're going to cover the absolute worst the episode is the best rule for great episodes from my experience is get really smart super experienced people that you want to talk to anyway have like a meta topic and like two to three sub bullet points even if it's 45 whole minutes two to three sub bullet points you know you want to crack into and let really smart people roll and honestly like don't let comms people be very involved. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is maybe the specific question for me is like, haven't done a lot of folks who work in firms um, that yes. would have comms people in the first place, and this is the sort of tension, and this is like why I think your show is good because I know it's hard, and like you know people it's have tough, constraints yeah. and companies like you gotta. I mean, I don't do it a lot because it's just like a fucking headache. Um, it is so, a headache. Uh, it's a headache. <laughs> So, yeah. um, uh, you know, the way that you're able to get people to talk, you know, relatively openly about their business and their business challenges and what they see on their horizon and like have it not just be an advertisement, I think is um, uh, I think is really cool. Thank you so much, Dan. All right. Hey, thanks for having me, brother. Kalamu <laughs> <laughs>